us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can rely on your word. And Lord, tonight we do wait for you, that you will illuminate our path, that we will follow your lead. And Lord, thank you for always being with us every second, every moment, every storm, every night. Thank you for always, always being with us. Now, Lord, we pray that you will open our minds, speak with my lips, overtake my body, and help me to preach and teach your word. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Tonight, I invite you to draw your sword and turn to 1 Peter chapter 4. I want to read in your hearing verses 12 to 19. Once you've found your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. 1 Peter chapter 4, I'll begin at verse 12, I'll conclude at verse 19. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial that you're suffering, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you're blessed, for the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. And if you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or a thief or any other kind of criminal or even as a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed. But praise God that you bear that name. For it is time for judgment to begin with the family of God. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is hard for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? So then... Those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. May God add his richest blessing to the reading, the preaching, the understanding, and the obedience of his perfect word. You may be seated. In order for us to understand this passage, perhaps the best scaffolding that we can construct for tonight's study could be found by the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. It is Jesus who said in Matthew chapter 5 verses 10, 11, and 12, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice, Jesus said, and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. In our passage, Peter wants the church to suffer well for the sake of the gospel. He wants you to suffer well. Not just any suffering, but suffering for the sake of Christ. He wants you to suffer well. He wants me to suffer well. But the question before us tonight is, how are we persecuted in our culture for Christ? Certainly it's different than first century Asia Minor. 
certainly it's different than what is about to happen to the Christians scattered throughout all of the Roman Empire. For there, it was illegal to be a Christian. They were kidnapped under the cover of night, thrown to the Colosseum. They suffered uh, at the hands of the gladiators or the lions, and some of them were even speared alive, set ablaze to illuminate Nero's garden at night. Now, all those descriptions do not describe what you and I experience today in the American culture. So how are we persecuted for Christ? I mean, in our society, how are we uh, suffering for the Savior? Christianity here is not illegal to God be the glory. There are some places, some nations on, in this world where Christianity is illegal. And yet, by God's grace, that's not here. That's not our experience of life. We don't know very many believers here in America that are going to jail because of their faith. There are a lot of brothers and sisters throughout the world that are going to jail because of their faith, but it's just not happening here. We don't know very many, if any, who are executed because of their explicit allegiance to the Lord. However, there are some places on this planet where people are being executed because of their allegiance to the Lord. I'm not saying that that could not happen here. I'm not saying that it would never be a possibility here in America. But here, in this moment, in this, in this uh, period of time, that's not what we experience. So how do we suffer well in a country where Christianity is legal, where to date people aren't going to jail because of their faith, not being executed because of their faith, what does it look like in our culture to be persecuted for Christ? Well, allow me to give just a few scenarios that, that may begin to paint the picture of what it could be like, what you may experience in your everyday walk with the Lord. Persecution could look like a Christian businesswoman who recently graduated with an MBA. She landed a lucrative job in a major corporation here in America. And early on, she was told that her work must be her total focus. She's called upon to work unbelievable hours. Even hours on the weekend, working six, seven days a week is not uncommon. Now, in the interview process, she was very transparent and very clear. She expressed her Christian faith, her dedication to her church, and the priority that she had in her life for Sunday worship. And yet, once she landed the job, once she got into the rhythm of the work experience, she was told that she had to come in on Sunday morning, and when she said she couldn't come in on Sunday morning, her supervisor simply shrugged his shoulders and said to her, well, that's your decision, but don't blame me if you don't get the promotion. Maybe that's what persecution looks like for the sake of Christ. Or it could be that Christian firefighter. He's single, he's in his mid-20s, he loves the Lord, he wants to live for the Lord, yet he struggles whether or not he needs to attend the bachelor party of one of his firefighting friends. He knows the beer will flow, but he's not one who consumes alcohol. It's nothing that's a real uh, hindrance for him. It's not a stumbling block, uh, stumbling, uh, block for him. He knows that the beer is going to flow. He has heard the whisperings that the stripper has already been ordered. He doesn't want to appear holier than thou. 
He wants to support the department and all of his friends that work there in the department. He knows that if he doesn't go, he'll never hear the end of it. Because all the other guys will simply say it's because he's a goody two-shoe, holier than thou. What's he supposed to do? Maybe in our context, it could be a nurse who is routinely in the operating room and yet she refuses to participate in the abortion procedure. And she gets written up by her supervisor for insubordination because she would not do what the doctor had told her to do, assisting him with that abortion. It just might be a Christian car mechanic who knows that his boss bills the customer for new parts but uses replacement parts to fix up the cars. And when the mechanic confronts his boss, a a man that he's known for 17 years, hadn't quite worked for him that long, but he's known him for 17 years, felt comfortable enough to, to approach him and tell him, hey, this is not ethical, this is not right. Only for that boss to say to that mechanic, well, if you can't work here, I accept your resignation. Maybe present-day persecution in our culture looks like a a teenager who is a believer in the Lord, yet ridiculed by his quote-unquote friends for not smoking pot. His friends, or so-called friends, they hound him every chance they get. And the friends take bets on which one of them can see that he might cave. It's just everyday pressure, persecution. It could happen to that 12-year-old boy. The 12-year-old boy who made the travel baseball team and he told the coach that he has to be gone one week this summer because of church camp. Only to have the coach say to him, you know I can't hold your starting position. And life's about choices. I know you're young, but you need to learn the lesson that Life is full of choices and you're just going to have to decide what you really want to do. The boy loves baseball. He loves his starting position. But he also loves the Lord. What's he going to do? It could be that Christian mother of three. And she feels the pressure to give all of her children those same experiences as all of their friends. So what does that look like? Well, she shuttles the kids in the family SUV from one activity to the next practice to the next piano lesson. And she wonders, after the rat race of life, she wonders, is this what it looks like to truly train a child in the way he should go? And when he is old, he shall not depart from it. Is that what it looks like, this rat race of life, keeping up with everybody else's kids and doing everything that everybody else's kids are doing so that all of our children have the same experiences and nobody feels left out? And at the end of the day, everybody's dead dog tired. She feels that pressure to be that mom, to do those things. And then she asked some of her other, other mom friends who she thought were, were Christian ladies and they all ridicule her and make fun of her because of her old-fashioned 1950 values. It's everyday pressure, ridicule, calls for compromise. 
persecution. Christianity is not illegal here. Uh, People aren't going to jail. They're not being executed. Yet every day there are people in our context, in our culture, in our society that feel the pressure of caving in. And so Peter writes this letter to help you, to help me, to suffer well for the sake of the gospel. You stop and think about it. The gospel calls us to do good because we are good. Not good in and of ourselves, but good because of what Jesus has done for us. All of our sin nailed to the cross, we don't bear it anymore. His righteousness is now our righteousness, and we live out that righteousness in everyday life. So we are called to be good because he is good. I mean, the call of the gospel is not a call of harm. It's a call of help. The call of the gospel is not a call of selfishness, it's a call of sacrifice. So really, if you stop and think about it, from society's perspective, it should be good to have Christians around, right? I mean, Christians are supposed to be people that that do good and try to help other people and live out this good gospel that's been given to us. So from society's perspective, you would think, why in the world would they persecute Christians. Why would pagans persecute, make fun of, ridicule, pressure people who are devoted to Christ? Why in the world would that take place? Why would that happen? Why is there so much suffering? It happens in your life, in my life. It's part and parcel with a human condition. You know, sometimes when life is comfortable, what do we say? We say, God is so good. And then when life gets chaotic, when life gets pressurized, when persecution comes at every turn, when suffering takes place, we say, God, why did you let this happen? Why why now? Why me? Why God? Right? When life is good, God is good. When life is bad, God, where are you? You would think that You would think that society would be glad that we're around. You would think that that because we try to live for the Lord, he would alleviate some of that pressure. So what do we do? So here Peter says in verse 12, dear friends, uh, do not be surprised at the painful trial you're suffering. As though something strange were happening to you. He says, I want you to see it as a badge of honor actually. That when you go through suffering for the sake of the gospel, just know that that's at some level not abnormal. So I I want you to know that God is good. Even in the suffering, God is good. He addresses the congregation as dear friends. These are not people that Peter knew well. Some would say Peter never even met these Christians in Asia Minor. Yet he knew that they were brothers and sisters in Christ. And so there was a bond of Jesus Christ so that he could say, you are my dear friend. The Greek word is, uh, in that Greek word is the word agape. So it's agape ones. That's dear friends. Those of us who love each other with the love of God. And we love each other with the love of God because God's love is in us. So we are dear friends. Let me chase a little bit of a rabbit here, but listen, if, if there's ever a place in this culture that should be a safe place, it should be the church, right? I mean, it should be the place where people really are friendly to each other. 
I mean, the church really ought to be the place where you walk in and you know that you're cared for. That you know that uh, people genuinely love you. I mean, the workplace may not treat you that way. And sometimes, uh, you know, the marketplace doesn't. And the ball field may not. But here at the church, we should treat each other with love and kindness. Genuinely being excited to see each other because we have no promise or prospect that we're going to see each other ever again. And so this may be the last time that we see each other. Boy, that changes things, doesn't it? It's the last time that we may lay eyes on each other. So, boy, it's really good to see you. I'm glad that you're here. But you know what happens in far too many churches and maybe even this church? There's far too much criticism, far too much ridicule, far too much sarcasm. Where people walk away and they think to themselves, I don't think anybody there even cares about me. You know, sometimes we say to our children or our students or maybe even to fellow adults, if somebody's missed for a while, instead of saying, you know what, genuinely, I am glad you're here. What do we say? Well, where have you been? Thought you left the church. You're going to have to rejoin the church. You've been gone for two, three weeks. Boy, I'm glad that you're glad that I'm here, right? I mean, you know, to be honest, I think that many times we just need a good lesson on how to care for each other. Our children's ministry, our student ministry, our small group ministry, our adult ministry. We don't treat each other like friends all the time. Far too much sarcasm dripping from our lips. Trying to be funny when we're really not funny at all. Barbed-wired words that stick. I mean, that, that's what happens. That's what church people do. I don't know why. I really don't know why. When, when we ought to say, hey, we are dear friends. Man, it's good to see you. I'm glad that you're here. Can I help you? Is there any, do you need anything? And genuinely, I mean, let me, let me do what I, very best I can. Because we are... We are dear friends. If there's ever a place where people need to be cared for and loved with the unconditional, no strings attached, never ending kind of agape love, it needs to be here in the faith family in this context where we can say to each other, you are my dear friend. That's what Paul says. And he says this to people he had never met before. (laughs) But he knew those Christians scattered in Asia Minor, they're Christians They're fellow believers in the Lord. So he says to them, dear friends, this is not the first time he's used that same word. He used it in uh, chapter 2, verse 11. Here, chapter 4, verse 12. He says, dear friends, look, don't be surprised when you experience painful trials. Trials of suffering, as though something strange were happening to you. Don't be surprised with the trials. Literally, that word that phrase in in my version that's translated painful trial literally is fiery ordeal it's the same kind of thing that he referenced in chapter one verses six and seven you can flip one page over probably and see that first peter chapter one beginning at verse six in this you greatly rejoice though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief and all kinds of trials These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, 
may be proved genuine, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Sometimes we go through fiery trials, fiery ordeals. It's, it's the imagery of smelting, that God uses that, that suffering to burn away the impurities and the dross. And what's left behind is the pure, precious metal. What's left behind is the, is the pure individual fashioned in the image of Jesus Christ our Lord. So Peter says, I know that you're going through some fiery ordeals. He itemized those things all throughout the letter. Let me just quickly reference them. In chapter 2, verse 12, he called them false accusations. Don't know exactly what they were, but he just renders them as false accusations leveled against you. In chapter 2, verse 15, ignorant talk. (laughs) Moronic talk. Just idiots being idiots is really what he's saying. Uh, People opening their mouth and they don't know what in the world they're talking about and yet they're leveling ridicule and criticism against you. He says in chapter 2 verse 15, it's ignorant talk. Chapter 2 verse 18, uh, there's a description of harsh treatment that the master has towards the slave. Some of the fiery ordeals is because of the harsh relationships that were being exhibited in the first century. Chapter 3, verse 14, some of you are suffering just for doing right. You're doing your best to do the right thing, the right way, God's way, and the end result is you are suffering, a fiery trial. Chapter 4, verse 4, the previous passage, just people are ridiculing you for righteous living. He says, Um, In chapter 4, verses 3 and 4, you spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do. Can I get an amen? (laughs) Okay, there wasn't a very hearty one. (laughs) But can we all give testimony that, listen, we've spent enough time looking and acting like a pagan. I mean, my past, your past, stuffed with worldly, pagan type of activity. And if you don't know what that is, then he describes it for us. Living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. They think it strange that you do not plunge with them into the same flood again. You're not doing the same things that you used to do. And they're ridiculing you because you are saying, I have staked my claim, I've drawn the line, I no longer live for myself, I now live for my Savior. And because of that, you're being ridiculed for righteous living. Peter says, because of these things, you're experiencing fiery ordeals. Now, friend, let me get back to a question I mentioned earlier. Why should the culture slander, abuse, ridicule, mock, make fun of people who are doing good and people who really have no cause for harm? The society should look at the church and say, we are glad that you're here because you try to do right. You try to live well. The, the culture should look at us and say that, that's a good thing. But instead, the culture slanders and ridicules. And the pagans look at you, believer, and they say you are ridiculous. You believe in a resurrected Lord? How outrageous is that? You believe that everything in your faith is staked on the reality that the God-man came and died on the cross for your sins and on the third day you actually believe a dead man started breathing again. How many dead people do you know that have ever started breathing again? The culture looks at you and they say, you, you believe an out, outlandish story. 
Why is that? But why would the culture slander and ridicule and mock you? You're not trying to harm anybody. You're trying to do right. You're trying to do good. You're trying to live well. Peter says that suffering is the occasion by which believers' faith is tested and proven authentic. That's why he says, welcome the suffering for Christ's sake. It's a badge of honor. Welcome it because it's an opportunity to prove the authentic, genuine faith that you possess and possesses you. So see that suffering as an opportunity to bear witness to the real faith that's inside of you. So because of that, Peter says, rejoice. Listen to what Dietrich Bonhoeffer said. I've already mentioned it once or twice. Bonhoeffer says that suffering is a badge of true discipleship. John R. W. Stott said, being despised and rejected, slandered and persecuted is as much as normal for the Christian disciple as being merciful and pure in heart. You remember what Paul said to Timothy? Everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. You can't put the cookies any lower on the bottom shelf, can you? I mean, Paul just explicitly said to his son of the ministry, Timothy, everybody, anybody who wants to live a godly, good life in Jesus Christ, you will be persecuted. Leslie Newbigin said the gospel of peace in Christ that's designed to destroy walls of hostility actually provokes hostility. Newbegin is exactly right. That this gospel that is to bring peace, peace with God, peace with self, peace with fellow man, this gospel that does successfully bring peace, that is intended to destroy the walls of hostility, actually in a sinful pagan world, provokes hostility. All you have to do is look to the cross and you see this personified. God is the God of love. Jesus came and he is love personified. And how was love personified treated? With hatred. You look to the cross and Jesus is the Prince of Peace. And when he came into the world, how was the Prince of Peace treated? He was met with chaos and hostility by an angry world. Even religious people. And Jesus, who is life, life eternal, life uh, in resurrection, this one who is life, how was he met? How was he greeted? He was given over to death. So Jesus came and he is the one who breaks down all the walls and actually it provokes hostility. Some of, uh, some of you may think to yourself, you know, suffering ought to be abnormal. And it's only abnormal in the pre-fall Garden of Eden and in the eschaton. Those are the only two places where suffering's abnormal. You don't see suffering before sin was introduced into the world, Right? So it would be abnormal to find suffering in the pre-fall Garden of Eden. It will also be equally strange and weird and abnormal to see suffering in the last days, in the eschaton, when Jesus comes back and sets up his kingdom, makes all uh, things right. When Jesus comes back, when he rescues the church in the eschaton, uh, the eschatological age, it will be abnormal for there to be suffering. 
Because what does it say in Revelation? There'll be no more tears. He'll wipe away all of the joy killers. No more mourning, no more sickness, no more death. All the things that steal our joy will be gone in the eschaton. So because of that, suffering is abnormal. You and I could say, suffering's abnormal. Yeah, it is. Before the fall. And it's going to be abnormal in the eschaton. But there's something very normal about suffering in between those two. Suffering is part and parcel with the human condition. In fact, Jesus, you may even say he dignified suffering. (laughs) He normalized suffering. Christ's suffering normalized suffering for the Christians in this world. So you look to Jesus and you see that Jesus suffered immensely. And he suffered immensely not so that you won't suffer. He suffered immensely to show you and me how to suffer well. By his suffering, we know that if we are identified by his name, that we too will suffer. Persecution at various forms. And at some level, it will feel like a fiery ordeal. And in the process, what God is doing is he is using that fiery ordeal of suffering to burn away all your impurities and all the dross. And we follow the example of Jesus. Because the suffering of Jesus, it always leads us to a cross and an empty grave and on to glory. That's what it does. So in verse 15, Peter wants to specify, listen, if you suffer, be sure you suffer for the sake of the gospel. Don't suffer because you're a murderer. Don't suffer because you're a thief. Do not suffer because you're a criminal, an evildoer is really what the word means. Now remember Jesus, he kind of redefined what it was to be a murderer, right? You've heard it said, do not murder. I say to you, don't even get angry with your brother. So Jesus kind of redefined some of these things. And so Peter brings that up, I think, to remind the congregation of the words of Christ. Don't be a criminal. Don't be a murderer or a thief. Because certainly if you're a murderer or a thief or an evildoer, you will suffer. You will suffer justly. So he's saying... um, If you suffer, make sure you're suffering for the gospel. Don't just suffer because, you know what? You made a mistake, you got involved in sin, and there are consequences to that sin. He uses a fourth word that's only a Peter word. It's nowhere else found in the New Testament. Your translation may render it the same as mine, a meddler. I mean, don't be a murderer. Yeah, we got that. Don't be a thief. Okay, we understand that one. Don't be a criminal, a crook. Um, Don't be somebody who uh, practices evil doing. Okay, we understand that. But then he throws in this fourth one, doesn't he? Don't be a meddler. It's a word that nobody really knows exactly what it means because Peter's the only one who uses it. But most have understood it to be, uh, don't be a busybody. Don't be somebody that gets involved in the affairs of somebody else. Don't be a person that gets involved in the business of somebody that's really none of your business. Don't be an individual that tries to interfere with family affairs that really have nothing to do with you. Don't be a person who uh, tactlessly attempts to do evangelism or conversion without any compassion for somebody else. In other words, just, just, just don't be a busybody. Now, for most of us, we would say, okay, uh, being a murderer is one thing, 
Being a thief is something else, but a busybody? And he says, don't, don't even be a busybody. Now, Peter's the one saying this, right? You remember the life and ministry of Peter? It is Peter who uh, said to the Lord, uh, you cannot suffer. There can't be a suffering Messiah. Jesus said, it is necessary for the Son of Man to go to Jerusalem, be handed over, and they'll be crucified. And this must take place. And it's Peter who pulls him aside and says, no, 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 no. No, you are a mighty macho Messiah. You're going to come in and you're going to stick it to the man. You're going to come in and you're going to overthrow the Roman Empire. And you're going to show him really who's boss. What was he doing? Peter was being a busybody. He was uh, opening his mouth and inserting his foot. You remember on the night that Jesus was betrayed, it is Peter who says, you know what, Jesus, I'll die for you if I have to. I mean, I, I got your back, bro. I mean, I am with you. I mean, I will even lop off the ear of a Roman soldier for you. I'll do whatever it takes. Yeah. Peter, before the night's over, you'll deny me three times. I mean, this is Peter, right? Peter I think when he uses the word meddler, I think he's talking about himself. I think he's talking about you. I think he's talking about me. Because let me ask you, I mean, certainly there were meddlers, there were gossips, there were busybodies in the first century church, but we've evolved, haven't we? I mean, we're the 21st century church. We don't have anybody that gets out of their lane, do we? We don't have anybody that's a gossip. We don't have anybody that's a busybody. We don't have anybody that sticks their nose into something that's really none of their business. We don't have anybody like that, do we? Oh, maybe we, we just might. So Peter says, listen, if, if you suffer, um, yeah, don't, don't suffer because you're a, a thief or a murderer or a criminal of some sort. And even... Don't suffer for the acceptable crimes of society, the acceptable crimes in church. Listen, your only crime ought to be your allegiance to the Lord. That's the only crime that, that the world ought to level against you. You are a Jesus freak. You are somebody who is so madly in love with the Lord that all you can think about and speak about and talk about and live out is this relationship that you have with Jesus Christ. So, you ought to be a person uh, who is one who just makes much of Jesus. Don't be ashamed for suffering for the name. The name is, conveys essence or character. Don't, don't be afraid for suffering for the name of Christ. Verse 17, it is time for judgment to begin with the house of God. Does that scare anybody else when they read those words? When you read the words that it is time, Peter says, for judgment to begin, it will begin first with the family of God. Whoa, 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 whoa. Wait a minute. I mean, I, I love Romans chapter 8, right? Romans 8, 1, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And this chapter of Romans 8 that begins with no condemnation, it ends with no separation. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any power, nor any height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus our Lord. Woohoo! We love that, don't we? There's no condemnation. There is no separation. I mean, we are one with God in Christ because Jesus bore it all on our behalf. 
So we think to ourselves, what judgment's left? I mean, Jesus declared it is finished, right? What does that mean? It's got to mean something. It's got to mean payment is paid in full. There's no more condemnation. So, so what does Peter mean? What's he driving at? That it's time for judgment to begin with the family of God. Well, even for the saints, we will be evaluated, right? Uh, the works that we do, they'll be subject to God, be evaluated. I also think there's something else going on here. That there's coming a time when God will separate the wheat from the weeds. The children of light from the children of darkness. The sheep from the goats. You remember many of the parables of Jesus when they talk about the wheat and the weeds. I mean, uh, don't you want us to go in and pull up the weeds? And the farmer says, no, 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 let them grow side by side at the harvest time. The harvesters will come. They'll take away the weeds, burn them in a fire, gather the wheat into the storehouse. Some have said that's a picture of the world. I don't know. I think it's more of a picture of the church. Because elsewhere in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus said, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Isn't that, isn't that a, a gut punch right there? Not everybody who says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Here's a sobering thought. Not everyone who goes to this church is going to go to heaven. Isn't that sobering? Because we're still living in a time when wheat is right beside weeds. Children of light living right beside children of darkness. So here Peter is saying, listen, it, it, it is soon, it's coming soon when the judgment will begin and God will start with the family of God and then he will also judge those who reject the gospel. If it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? Then he quotes Proverbs. It is hard for the righteous to be saved. Do not think that it is easy to save you. What did it cost? The precious blood of the Lamb of God. It cost a lot. Listen, if your salvation and my salvation could have been purchased by a couple of angels, God would have done it. If it, if it merely could have been just the, the waving of a hand, don't you think God would have done it? If it was just enough just to kind of, you know, wink and nod or sweep the sin under the proverbial carpet, don't you think God would have done it? If there had been an easier way, a lesser way, if, if there would have been a, a simpler way for you to be saved and for me to be saved, don't you think God would have done it? But God said it is, it's hard to save the soul of Davin Watkins. And it's hard to save your soul. It's not an easy task. You know what it's going to take? It's going to take the precious blood of the Lamb of God. It's going to require the God-man, fully God, fully human, who's going to come and die in his stead, her stead. It's hard to be saved. It was not an easy thing for God, and yet God did it. He sent his one and only son. It was God's will to make the son suffer so that you may live. Friend, your salvation came at a high price. It was a great cost. The crown jewel of heaven 
was required to secure and seal your salvation. It's hard for the righteous to be saved. So what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? The ultimate question of our paragraph passage is, Peter wants to know, will the insults and the abuse and the criticism and the ridicule and the persecution that you experience, those fiery ordeals, will they push you to deny Christ and reject the gospel? Or will those things help you to declare your allegiance to Christ and receive the gospel all the more? What will be the end result of the persecution that you experience? That's the question. What will that persecution do? Will it push you to the point of denying Christ and wagging your finger in the face of God? God, why me? Why this? Why now? Will it cause you to deny Christ, turn your back upon him, reject the gospel? Or will your suffering be a badge of honor that draws you closer to the precious bleeding side where you declare with your lips and your lives, Jesus is Lord. And you receive with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength the good gospel. And you know that as a believer, you need more of the gospel today than you've ever needed it. So what will the persecution do? Verse 19 so then those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. When he says to that church, I say to this church, commit yourselves to Christ the creator and continue to do good. You say tonight, whether you're in persecution or whether you're not, whether you're feeling the pressure or whether you're not, you say tonight that when that moment comes, I've already resolved in my heart. I have committed myself to Christ, my creator, and I'll continue to do good. In other words, what Peter is saying is what Joshua said. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Can I go so far as to say this? As for me and this house, we will serve the Lord. To God be the glory.